0: The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn your scriptures to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, two verses, although just one verse will be our text for today. John chapter 5, verse 25 and verse 26. John 5, verse 25, this is the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, now as we enter your sacred word to consider your sacred life in ours, be pleased, almighty God, by the work of the eternal spirit of truth to reveal unto us beautiful and glorious truths concerning yourself and concerning us. We ask you, almighty God, be pleased to work in me as I speak and in all of us as we hear that we might be equipped to do every good work, and think every good thought, that we might bring glory to you in all matters. For we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Why is human life sacred? Why is it holy? Well, to answer that question, we must understand what life is, what it is comprised of, and where it comes from. The message of this sermon is really rather simple, derived from uh, John chapter 5, verse 26, and other scriptures. First it is this, God is life, and God communicates life to us, therefore life is holy. God is life, he communicates life. Therefore, life is holy. We live in an age, as we all know, of the most rampant and irrational redefinition of the most basic concepts of our existence, life being one of them. Given that that is a fact, it is vitally important for us as Bible-believing Christians to ground our understanding in issues of life and then death, but particularly life today, to ground our understanding of life in God himself and in the scriptures whereby God has revealed unto us his holy word. Thus today we're seeking to understand the life of God in our lives. The life of God in our lives. Our points before us are very simple. God is life, firstly. God is life. Second, God communicates life. And third, therefore, life is holy. It's a simple syllogism. God is life. God communicates life. Therefore, life is holy and sacred. What do we mean when we say then, God is life? The matters that pertain to Christianity, and indeed the whole world, are very much matters of life and death, both temporally, in time, and eternally. In time, we ask, what is life? How, then, should we live? When does life begin? How do we rightly protect the life of the unborn? How do we rightly protect the life of the living, the born? Uh, What is death? What should the Christian think of life and death? That's for now, because though the answer to those questions have implications for what we believe eternally. Eternal life is something granted only by God to his people. It is the product of the redemptive work of Christ applied to us by the Spirit. Life and death issues are real for everyone. Temporally, we might ask ourselves, what is Life. How do we define life? Culture, as we know, seeks to define the concept of life in its own image according to its own understanding, which is clearly a selfish, sinful, and self-serving definition of life. That's why Christians need to understand biblically what life is. Uh, While culture serves itself in definitions of life and death, We serve the true and living God, the true and living God, who has revealed himself in providence, in general revelation, and specifically in special revelation, his word. And he has revealed foundational truths that speak to us of life and death issues. The first matter before us today is we serve the living and true God. Notice this, God is living. God is living. Scripture tells us that very fact. Psalm 18, 46 reads, The Lord lives. Psalm 42, verse 2 says, My soul thirsts for the living God. Jeremiah 10:10, But the Lord is the true God, He is the living God, and the everlasting King. Our God is the living God. He is alive. But actually, Scripture says more than that. Our text here in John 5.26 says, The Father has life in himself. And he's granted the Son to have life in himself. He has life in himself. Very, very important to our discussion and our determination of matters of life. It's important for us to understand no other living thing can be described in this fashion. No other living thing except the triune God can be described as having life in himself. Two points come out of this for us today. Two points. God is the great I am. That's a statement of absolute, perfect Unconstrained life and self-existence. Self-existence. Secondly, God is life. Just like God is love, God is righteous, God is holy, God is eternal, God also is life. Theologians have two technical terms for the two ideas I've just mentioned. The first term is aseity. Aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, the self-sufficiency of God. When it comes to God, God's life is not derived from anything outside of himself. He is self-existent. His life is self-existent. He is not a creature that relies on another to give life. That's aseity, his self-sufficiency. But the second matter before us is his simplicity. God is simple. Now we need to understand that. The simplicity of God, when theologians speak of it, means that God is his attributes. God is life. God is holy. God is righteous. God is spirit. It's not that he has these things and somehow all these different attributes, like the parts of a car, make up a car. That's not what God is. God is these things. God is life. And he is self-sufficient life. God in his essence. Just as he is holy, righteous, almighty, and so on, he is life in himself. God is living Because he is life. We are not that way. We are living because God gives us life. But nothing gives God life. He is life. What does this mean with respect to God? Four matters to think on that we'll take forward as we begin to think of God communicating life to us. God is self sufficient. As one writer says, he alone lives by his own inherent power. His life is self-sufficient. His life is eternal. He stands not in need of anyone or anything else. He is self-sufficient. Therefore, secondly, he is the very definition of life. We understand the concept of life not according to our own wisdom, but according to the self-revelation of God, both in general revelation, but principally in his word. God is the very definition of life. And when we begin as humans to try and redefine life, we are playing with fire. Thirdly, out of these two doctrines, he is the fullness of, of life not only does god define life he is the very fullness of life there is no blessedness in life without reference to god there is no other source outside of god for life father son and spirit as one triune god enjoy life to the fullest degree beyond actually our imagination And fourthly, Scripture describes God as the fountain of life. All other life comes from this great source, this great defining life, this self-sufficient life. All other life, listen, comes from this life. Really important. Really very important. If these things be true that we've said of God, his aseity, his self-sufficiency, his simplicity, that he is God, that he defines the very concept of life, we begin to have, friends, foundations upon which we can build a doctrine of life, a teaching of life. Key for us in that is establishing the source, the foundation, the first principle, God himself is is life and defines life. And then secondly, we see and ask, what has then God done with this divine eternal life? What has he done with it? So God is life, friends. God is life. But secondly, what has he done with that life? He communicates that life to his creation. He communicates life to his creation. All of life as we know it finds its origin, its definition, and thus its significance in God. The Genesis account of creation makes this abundantly clear. Turn, if you want, to Genesis chapter 1. I'm going to reference it quite significantly now. God has life in himself, and yet in creation he communicates that divine life to his creation. That's what's going on here, not in an undistinguished manner. We're not saying that we become God, we remain the creature, he remains the creator, but yet God communicates that life to his creation. All of life is of God, all of life is from God, all of life is to be to the glory of God. And when it comes to the whole pro-choice, pro-life debates, the battles of our time, we need to carefully differentiate between the kinds of life that God has created. The different kinds of life. First of all, Genesis 1 verse 11 Genesis 1 verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruits, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to uh, its kind on the earth. God created plant life, uh, each according to its kind. God communicated his life to the creation in these growing living organisms. We understand their life is limited its purpose is limited. We'll see that in a minute. Yet God created plant life, Genesis 11. Let the earth bring forth. Then we turn to Genesis one twenty through to verse 25. There we have the creation of sea animals, air animals, and land animals. In each of those verses, in each of those sections, sea, air, and land, we have the statement, God created great sea creatures and every living animal creature, life, living creature, each according to their kind. And yet when we get to the third kind of life, the most impressive, the pinnacle of creation, we read this in Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Now immediately we begin to see similarities between these three areas of life and great distinctions between these areas of life. There is plant life, there is animal life, there is human life. All this life that God created, at the end of Genesis, uh, Genesis 1, God looks at the creation and says, it's all very good. It's all very good. It couldn't be any other way because the divine God communicated his life to his creation in a very good fashion. Yes, there's a similarity. All life is God-given, but surely we would say there are greater distinctions than there are similarities, because scripture defines these kinds of life in very specific fashion. There is plant life which we know from Genesis 1.29, even before the fall of man, before Adam's fall, plant life is created for the purpose of food for man. Genesis 1.29, God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. Plant life by God was created to be consumed. Destruction of that kind of life is inherent in the created order. We understand that. Plant life is created for being consumed. But then there's animal life. Physically and psychologically very different from the lives of plants. And we see animal life manifested in three principal ways. The first one is breath. Breath. Genesis 120, 124, and so on, when God creates those animals, he create, creates them as living creatures. That means breathing creatures. The idea of breath in them. Breath is essential to animal life. So also does Scripture define blood as being a central aspect of life. Genesis chapter 9, verse 4. God says to Noah, You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, it's blood. Breath and blood are two elements of animal life. But then also so is flesh. Flesh, breath, blood, and flesh. God says in the flood narrative, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Breath, blood, and flesh. Part of that flesh is the brain of animals, and the brain of animals' capacity of some limited thought, uh, capable of of feeling in some sense or another. Friends, this is why Scripture enjoins upon us to take care of our livestock. We are to value animals because God has communicated his life to the animal kingdom. Uh, we, we are, as all, of all people, to have a high view of the life that God has given to animals. He's communicated his life to the animal kingdom in breath, in blood, and in flesh. But we get to mankind, and we see another distinguishing feature. First of all, we see breath. Yes, we do. Genesis 2.7, Adam is created as a living, a breathing being. Breath. Blood is also in man, counted as life. Genesis 9.5, God says, And for your lifeblood, lifeblood, notice that, I will require a reckoning. For every beast I will require it, and from man. For mankind, breath and blood are two elements that compose human life. But also, as we've seen in Genesis 6.3, we see that man is also flesh. God said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, breath, blood, and flesh. God communicated divine life to human beings in these three ways, but... There's one hugely significant difference, which you all know, no doubt already, Genesis 1.26. What is the difference between humans and animals, humans and plants? It is this, let us make man in our image after our likeness. One twenty seven. God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. The image of God in man separates man from the rest of creation. No other part of creation has this image of God in it in the same way we do. Human life is the only part of creation where, firstly, we see a divine conference taking place before its creation. Everything else is, uh, let the earth bring forth. Let the seas bring forth. This is Then God said, let us, Father, Son, and Spirit in divine conference meeting together to discuss the pinnacle of his creation, the creation of mankind. No other part of creation is made in the image and in the likeness of God. What does that mean? It means that man is rational. Uh, He has an intellect, an emotional life made with the capacity for communing with God on a personal level. Man is given dominion over the creatures and is given the creation mandate, verse 28. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Friends, in other words, there is a kind of life for plants There is a kind of life for animals. There is another kind, a different kind for human beings. Human life is categorically in a different class from every other kind of life we find that God created. All God-given, all God-created, but with different purposes and different significance. The pinnacle of divine life in creation is human life. The pinnacle of God's life in our lives in creation is human life. Breath, blood, flesh, and the image of God in us. Friends, I want to say this to you. These true marks of divine life in each of us here today are true of a fully grown human being as they are true of a day-old embryo. As true for us, as true for an embryo. This is really very important. A fertilized human egg. Bears all these hallmarks of life from the very moment of conception. Now, the egg bears these markers of life in different ways throughout the pregnancy and then after birth, but there is most certainly flesh in the human embryo, even at the cellular level. It doesn't have to be skin and bones as we have it to be flesh. It has breath. Either by benefiting and borrowing from its mother's oxygen supply, it ha- or later on in its own, right? It has blood, again benefiting from its mother's supply, and then later its own supply. And by very definition, this human embryo is made in the image of God. The embryo is in the image of God. There is no indication whatsoever in Scripture that humanity, the image of God, somehow descends upon a child later in life. No, the kind of life that God created in humanity, even in an embryo, is one which has the image of God stamped on it from day one. The embryo, friends, bears all the hallmarks of human life why because it is human life listen to scripture jeremiah 1 5 god says to jeremiah before i formed you in the womb i knew you and before you were born i consecrated you listen to psalm 139 verses 13 to 16 which you've already sung this morning were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. I mean, if that doesn't tell us that the embryo itself is formed and knitted by God, stamped with his very image, I don't know what does. It is simply an inescapable conclusion for serious-minded Bible-believing Christians that from the moment of conception we're dealing with something that is human and has the image of God, a person as yet undeveloped. Friends, human life from conception is derived from God's own divine life. That's why John Calvin would write, Hence, certain of the philosophers have not improperly called man a microcosm, a miniature world, a microcosm of God, a microcosm as being a rare specimen of divine power, of wisdom and goodness, and containing within himself wonders sufficient to occupy our minds if we are willing to so employ them a microcosm. That's precisely the point. We are a miniature world, a miniature version of God by his design. The life of God in humans is seen more clearly than anywhere else in creation. And that life is both physical and spiritual. Man is made for eternal communion with God, physical and spiritual, which ultimately, friends, is why our Lord Jesus Christ came. He came to restore both physical in resurrection and spiritual realities of life. He came to deliver body and soul from the slavery of sin and from death. 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 The very thing being administered to these little ones in the womb, death, Christ came to rescue his people from, physically and spiritually. The world rejoices today in death. It makes it a virtue, but we have to say, friends, this death in the womb, at the hands of man, is the most un-Christ-like activity we could imagine. He came to give life. And ultimately, this communication of divine life from God to us leads us to the biblically inescapable conclusion, life is sacred. God is life. God communicates life. Therefore, life is sacred life most certainly is sacred holy set apart from ordinary use for godly use job understood this well he understood it very well he said the lord gives and the lord takes away blessed be the name of the lord if that is not true friends if it's not the lord's prerogative to give and take away then we can define life as we want it will not be sacred it will be purely subjective what's life for you does not have to be life for me if we abandon god that is the inescapable conclusion in our definition for life in fact it's the only rational conclusion if we abandon god it has no meaning And friends, if that is the case, we will end up like Israel of old. We have ended up like Israel of old. Our nation has. Western civilization has gone down this road, the road of killing infants in the womb, whether in the womb or out of the womb in a sense. Listen to what God says of this sin. It's a sin so appalling, God expresses it in this way, Jeremiah 7 verse 30. But the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the son of Hinman, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come into my mind. Nor did it come into my mind, says the Lord. Now, we know that's an anthropomorphism. It's a way of expressing a significant truth in a way that we can understand. Nothing is new to God's mind. He's self-existent. But God is so appalled by this abomination of destroying children. He says, this sin, as it were, did not even come to my mind. The all-knowing God... Says to us, it did not come to my mind. Life is not defined by us, it's defined by God. God is life, God is holy, therefore, life is holy. That's another syllogism. And this is a theological truth, it's a human reality, which for us, friends, forms the very foundation for life and death conceptions and it most certainly prohibits us taking the life of a baby in the womb and indeed of any life unless the giver and taker of life dictates we should do it if if the lord gives and the lord takes away then death friends is god's prerogative it is his right. The moment and the manner of death belong unto the Lord. Whether it's holy war that Israel was to wage against the kind of nations who were doing these detestable acts, God says, go in there and destroy them as a judicial act of punishment on their wickedness. Or Genesis 9, capital punishment where God requires the death of some in certain situations is still God requiring that death. It is not man requiring it. It is God commanding, in these circumstances, the death penalty must be given. God requires death. God ultimately enacts that death. There are just times to take life, even in the protection of ourselves against our enemies. But it is always according to the command and the character of Almighty God. And this principle is a rule for all occasions in life. There is never a moment where the Christian can supersede God's will and say, I have another category where death can be given. It is only when God requires that death to be made, to be taken, can death really be taken in a righteous fashion. This is a rule for all occasions, friends, including those horrific situations which make their way into this whole debate where ending a pregnancy because of rape or incest or because there is a threat to the mother's life. God has not given us liberty, even in those situations, to end a life. That's not even close to a judgment call that is contravening directly the command of God. It is the Lord who gives. It is the Lord who takes away And friends, we must live by that, whether we like it or not. I could give you many practical exhortations about how to engage in this whole debate. I'm going to leave that for our brother in Sunday school. But one thing I can say to us, this ought to be a matter of prayer. Perhaps more significantly than it has been, both individually and familiarly and corporately, prayer is the very least thing we can do for these matters but i want to say to you also friends we close this this morning there's one thing more significant more significant than physical life even we can say the life of the unborn and that's the spiritual life that is on offer in jesus christ it is on offer for all for offenders even in this whole debate It is life on offer for offenders, for the offended, even in those situations we've just mentioned. Life on offer for all. I want to say this with great care. Saving babies in the womb will not get you to heaven. Otherwise, you get to heaven by your works. As important as that task is for us all. It's nothing but the mercy of God in Christ Jesus that as a sinner turns and repents of their sin no matter what they've done in the past. No matter what they've done in the past, they turn and repent and have faith in Christ. Their sins are washed away. Think on this, friends. In abortion, there is the terror of medical staff And parents putting their children to death. Friend, if you're without Christ here today, you're slowly but surely putting yourself to death. But Christ came to live and yet was put to death that we might live. Death has been overcome. Spiritually by our Savior, even one day physically, That day when there will be no more death. And those who have not repented of the sins they've engaged in, and anyone else who is unrepentant of their sin, the blood of all these infants cries out to God from the ground, and he hears it. Yet the mercy of God in Christ is rich, it's deep, it's overflowing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. As you repent from your sins and repress to Christ in faith, the righteous judgment of God, due for all your sins, whatever they may be, is transferred from you unto the Savior at the cross and his righteousness given in return to you, so you may stand before him on the last day. Christ has overcome death. His kingdom will bring this present evil age to an end. By his life, death, resurrection, he has secured our bodily resurrection, and he has secured for us spiritual life in him forever. Friends, find life in Christ. Protect life in Christ. Value life in Christ. Love life in Christ. But above all, love Christ himself. Let's pray. Lord God, what are we that you are mindful of us? How excellent is your name, because though we are made of dust, you have lifted us up to sit with the Savior in the heavenly places. Lord, work in each one of us according to our need, faith, repentance, conviction as to how we ought to stand, how we ought to serve. How we ought to love you and show that in obedience. love, Lord God, teach us to love you, to love your life and the life you have given unto us. Have mercy upon us. And we do pray, Lord God, that in this country and beyond, that you would see fit to bring an end to the evil practices that have for so long stained this country. Have mercy, we pray, Father in heaven. Give us grace as your children to serve you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.